Greater you, Lord, yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to remember who we are singing to and why we sing in the first place. Because of your greatness. Because of your love for us. Because you sent your son to die for us, even though we were undeserving. We're grateful. And this morning as we come, help us remember that. Pray in your name. Amen. You can be seated. And I want to say good morning. Good, nice, cool, crisp morning. One more Sunday left in August. And then we're into September. We're into Labor Day weekend and Be the Church weekend. We are then jumping into our fall kickoff. We're getting back into a regular routine. And I will tell you here right now, fall is my favorite season of the year. Fall is my favorite season of the year because I love it when temperatures begin to dip and you get to throw on a hoodie. I love seeing leaves change, driving into church this morning. I got to see balloons up in the air. Um, I love the fact that routine begins to settle in, that we become kind of everything becomes the way it's supposed to be with school. And some of you might even add in this morning that you love pumpkin spice. I am not one of those people, but I still love fall. And I'll tell you why I love fall. Most of all, some of you may not like this, but it's football season. All right, it is football season. Not only is it football season, but it's also the end of baseball season. They're overlapping. The best part of baseball season and all the football season all beginning to happen. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but last week until February, there will be football every weekend. God is good. Joy, right? I mean, some of you are like, no, really, it's not. It's not that great. And I understand because there's a point a couple of years political stuff really started infiltrating sports and it really got to drag me down just a little bit because I like sports as a go-to for an escape. It helps my mind just shut down, just be able to watch to the mind-numbingness of it all. I enjoy that part of it all and I think that's because it was my go-to growing up. It's how I grew up. It's how I, playing sports, watching sports, it's what helped me get through school. I've told you before, I was not good at school. I was not a good student. However, if I wanted to play sports, my mom said I had to keep at least a C average because C's get degrees. Don't quote me on that, kids. But it is the truth. And guess what? Here I am today because I want to be able to play sports. So I had to keep that going. I also think that help, uh, sports really helped me get through life in general. Because there are a lot of life lessons when it comes to sports. See, I started playing baseball at t-ball level all the way up through junior high. I played basketball from age six all the way through college. I played football in high school. And there's so much that happens in each one of those sports that is a lot like life. Really, it all starts because you have to start out with an elementary, basic, fundamental learning of that sport. You don't you're not expected to be an all-star right out of the gate. You are taught how to field. You're taught how to hit. You're taught how to throw. You're taught how to dribble. Uh, classic line from Vince Lombardi at the beginning of every football season. He would hold up a football to a bunch of guys who've been playing football their whole lives. And you know what he'd say? This is a football. That's how he started. Basic fundamentals. And as you grow somebody would come alongside of you and help you grow in those basic 
fundamentals. Somebody would coach you. Somebody would disciple you. Somebody would help you grow so you in your life could help determine what was next. Sometimes those, those coaches might alter some of the basics that you learned. Others would come along and build on that strong foundation and it would help you in whatever area of that sport that you were in. The same is true with life. The same is true with life and you might be thinking right now, well, why are we talking about this? What does this have anything to do with the Sermon on the Mount? What does this have anything to do with Matthew chapter 5 and living the good life? Well, my answer is a lot. So do me a favor. Open up to the book of Matthew chapter 5 for me today. And we're going to be in verses 21 through 26. And as we start in this new section on the Sermon on the Mount, we've been camping really in Matthew 5 since June. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of go back just a little bit and take a look. Let me just lay it out for you. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of the nature of true righteousness. And he starts off with the Beatitudes that we've been in since June. And he starts off in those first 12 12 verses with a description of true righteousness, a description of, of being blessed. He says, poor in spirit. To, to mourn over your sin, to be meek, to be humble, humble, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, and be a peacemaker. He says, because of that, you'll have a righteousness that lives inside of you as you live for Christ, but that is going to cause the unrighteous people to react. And the most likely reaction you're going to get is persecution, insults, and slander. But it's necessary. It's necessary for you to live that way because we are the salt of the earth and we are uh, the, the light of this world. We help prevent decay. We help shine light into darkness. All in order to bring glory to God our Father. And this isn't some new teaching that, that Jesus is throwing out there. We talked about it last week. He said, I didn't come to to wipe out and get rid of and abolish the Old Testament. No, I came to fulfill it. I came to share with you and so you could see what it was. But what Jesus was about to teach and what he was bringing now was opposite or at least in contradiction to what the Pharisees and the scribes had been teaching. See, they had twisted the law and the words of the prophets and Jesus came to make it straight. As a matter of fact, we hear a lot about scribes. We hear a lot about Pharisees. And, and I don't want to just assume that you know what it is. So let me just kind of break it down for you. Who the scribes were. Well, they were a group of people that were devoting their very lives to the study of the scriptures. The problem was, long before Jesus ever walked the earth, they began to twist that scripture. They had drifted from the meaning of the Mosaic law. They missed the law itself because they focused too much on the interpretations of what we'll see today, their ancestors. The interpretation of the ancients that had gone before. And they basically at this point had replaced the doctrine of God with the doctrine of man. So that's the scribes. Then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who claimed they practiced every part of that law. That they lived it out. But the problem with them, similar to the scribes, is they had drifted. Long before Jesus had ever come, they had begun to make this list of to-dos and to-don'ts. And the to-dos and the to-don'ts, they used to measure their ability to live righteously. They created a list that they could live up to so they could say they were righteous. There's a problem there. 
It's all about them and not about God. And the other problem is, is anytime anybody tries to, we'll use the word improve, or make up their own standard for what God has and what God has said, we lower the standard so we can bring it down to rules that we can follow, that we can keep. And because they had made their own rules, they became self-righteous. And they called themselves and declared themselves good. Now in these improvements and interpretations, they had taken those basics and fundamentals, just like we were talking about in sports life, they had taken those basics and fundamentals that God had given Moses for living the good life, and they twisted them. Think about the things that God gave Moses. The Ten Commandments. And the, the rules that are found in the Mosaic Law. We talked about it last week. Those are there as, as guardrails. They, they keep us from ending up in the ditch. There, there's some room in there, but they keep us from ending up in the ditch. And I began to think about this this week. What if, what if society, what if culture decided they would live by the Ten Commandments? Or even go to the summary of the Ten Commandments that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew. Love God, love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love others as yourself. What if they did that? How would this world be different? Well, the problem is, is we can look back to these Pharisees. We can look back to these scribes that had twisted it. And not lived by it, but lived by their own rules. And it created problems. And the reason why they did is they had the same question that we hear way too often. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. First question that Satan asked to Adam and Eve. You guys know what it is? Did God really say? Did God really say? And we begin to twist the rules and the laws that God did say to fit our own desires. And we misinterpret what God was trying to say. The Pharisees, from the very beginning there, had misinterpreted the law of God and the word of the prophets. Guess what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount? He's taking the foundation of true righteousness to correct the teaching and help us to see what the law really is about. That's why over these next six weeks, you're going to hear the rest of chapter 5, these words. You have heard it said by your ancestors. You have heard it said from our ancestors. You have heard it said to our ancestors. Basically meaning generation to generation, something's been passed down. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever played the game telephone before, where somebody starts on one side with a statement, and by the time it gets to the, around the group, the person at the end has a totally different statement than what was said at the beginning. That's basically what's happening here. Is that we have little tweaks and little twists that by the time it gets to here, it's been misinterpreted. The, the heart of the matter is there, but it's still being misinterpreted. And this game of telephone that they played, as Jesus is going to see over the next six weeks, murder, adultery, divorce, keeping a vow, revenge, and loving your neighbor. You're going to hear him say, you have heard it said to our ancestors. These are the things that have been passed down but perverted along the way. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you. Again, he is not trying to abolish 
the law. He has come to fulfill it. He's come to correct it. He's come to bring it around. And he's going to give the correct interpretation throughout the rest of chapter 5 and really throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And going back to the next week, it wasn't his goal. Or going back to last week, it wasn't his goal to get rid of the law. He's showing us that there's something more. Something more that's been left out. As a matter of fact, he is going to say there's something deeper about murder. There's something deeper about adultery. There's something deeper about divorce. And down the line, he wants us to look at it deeper. As a matter of fact, there's something bigger and deeper about our righteousness or our lack thereof. He's going to tell us there's a matter of the heart. It goes deeper than just the external. And really... If I was going to do a sub-series of our living the good life, I would call it, it's a matter of the heart. How do we live the good life that God has called us to? It goes far beyond our external actions, and it looks deeper at the heart. It looks deeper into who we are. So with that, let's dive into the first one today in murder. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, if you would follow along with me as I read. This is what it says. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid that last penny. Let's pray together. Father, we just ask you to speak to us through your word today. We ask us to, to open our hearts and open our minds to even this correct interpretation that you're trying to lay out, that it's not just about our external actions, but it is about our internal heart and our internal motives. Help us to see that, help us to recognize it, and help us to do something about it. We pray in your name. Amen. And I've already mentioned, and I'll point out to you again, this first statement of verse 21. It says this, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors. What Jesus is doing here is he's separating himself from the interpretation that people have really heard passed down throughout all the generation. And it's just not this outward conformity to the law, but instead it's a heart issue. And without looking deeper and into the heart and its motives, disaster lurks in the shadows. It, it really does. And what you have here is he's saying, what you have heard passed down is this. And he lays it out saying, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Maybe your translation says, you'll be liable in the court system. And the truth is, that's not wrong. Jesus isn't here saying, that is wrong teaching. He didn't say that. What he did say, is he said, you know what? You guys are saying the right thing. The sixth commandment. You've heard that the sixth commandment is mixed with some other Mosaic law in there that you should not murder. And if you do, there will be consequences. He's not correcting that because throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, it continues to say that. That if you commit murder, there will be harsh consequences if you're found guilty. I mean, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. God's talking to Noah. In verses uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 9, it says, 
And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. So God says whenever a person intentionally sheds innocent blood of another person, I do need to clarify this in case there's confusion, innocent blood means without godly reasons, like warfare or self-defense or police action or capital punishment, those kind of things. He's saying if it's not uh, by those means, if it is you're shedding innocent blood that murder is considered murder and a murderer will pay. Well, God detests the shedding of innocent blood. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says these words. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. And then we get the list. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, Feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. So we see it here that it is wrong. That Jesus is not saying anything against that. So if it's not wrong, why does he bring it up? It's because it's incomplete. They have minimized the standards. They have simplified it and made it easy to attain. They reduced the commandment to, if you commit murder, you have to go to court. That's all they say. But they left off two important details. Two important things, those foundational basics that are found in the two passages that we just read. And those foundational ba uh, um, basics are, you gotta lose your heart. What is it in your heart that would make you want to wipe a person who bears the image of God from this planet? What is it in your heart that would drive you to that? This is why it's incomplete. Because most of humanity can be like the scribes and the Pharisees and say, well, I've never murdered anybody. As a matter of fact, if you were with us last week, we said, how good is good enough? And when you ask the question to somebody about why would Jesus let you into his heaven? Why would God let you into his heaven? Well, I've been a pretty good person and the next thing they say is, I have never murdered anybody. Because that's the truth. Most of us have not. That, that is where we fall. But, like the Bible says in Proverbs 16 too, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord waves the motives. He looks at the heart. And Psalm 7, 9 says, Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thoughts and the emotions, the heart is a righteous God. See, he's saying it's more than just external. It is a matter of the heart. What is going on in the heart? What is going on in the mind? What is going on in the emotions of a person that you say, I want to remove that person from my presence forever? What is going through that? So then Jesus drops the correction. Say, so here we need to go a little bit deeper. In verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who is angry, that's quite a step from murder to anger. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. He says the goal of the sixth commandment is not external. It's internal. It is internal. He wants us to look deeper. He wants us to look at our corrupt hearts that can be filled with hate. They can be filled with anger. They can be filled with both contempt for God 
and contempt for man. He wants us to look at that. He wants us to look at the fact there are consequences for murder and the external parts of it all. But there's also consequences for internal hate and internal anger and internal slander and internal attacking people's character and belittling them. He wants us to realize this and think about this. We are not morally superior to murderers. We're not. We may not have committed the external crime, but my guess is you've hated somebody. My guess is you may have even wished somebody dead. I know. You may have even cut down somebody with words and done a character assassination. You may have just done that. Now you might be thinking to yourself, oh, I'm just having a really hard time remembering when that happened. Let me help you. Last, last three years or so, it's been a bit of a divide in our country. COVID, politics. So if you're wondering maybe some issues of anger and hate that you've had, let me, let me ask some questions. What are your feelings on masks? I don't actually want you to answer it. What are your feelings on vaccines? What are your feelings about our current political climate and the two parties that are trying to run or ruin, depending upon which word you want to use, our country? When you see somebody driving in their car by themselves with a mask on, what feelings do you have in your heart towards that person? When the height of everything that was going on, you were in Walmart and everybody but one person had their mask on, that one person that didn't was walking around very proud that they didn't, what was your feelings towards them? What feelings came up on the inside? And really, we all had our own thinking and had our own thoughts. The question is, is how did we feel towards the people who opposed your thinking and your thoughts? How do we feel towards them? Was there just a little bit of anger? Was there just a little bit of you fool? Oh, well, that's funny because Jesus kind of talks about that here. He says there's three examples of increasing intensity in judgment. He says, first you have anger, then you go to insults, and then you go to you fool. Now, different theologians will look at that in different ways. Some will say, well, this is an actually increase in the anger and an increase, therefore, in the judgment. Other theologians will say, no, no, it's covering all of us all in one big ball because it's basically saying we're all guilty. None of us can escape from that statement. Which one is it? Honestly, to me, it doesn't really matter. Because it can be either, but it doesn't change the fact that our anger, our hate, and our name-calling causes us to lose our saltiness. And it causes us to lose our light. And that's what's actually important. Because just a few verses before, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. So even in that, we go, oh, wait a second. I have a loophole. Jesus got angry, didn't he? Oh, but wait a second. Didn't he just say, how did that work? Yes, Jesus got angry. Matthew chapter 21 goes into the house of the Lord, starts flipping tables and driving people out, saying, you have turned the house of the Lord into a house or a den of thieves. John chapter 2, he actually fashions a whip. Crack that whip. 
driving people out. He's not happy. Multiple times, he calls out the Pharisees and, and, and literally embarrasses them in front of their followers. Even in Matthew 23, he calls them blind fools. Blind fools. Well, that just said you can't say you fool. But Jesus didn't sin. So what is going on here? What gives? How does all this come together? Well, here's the deal we have to understand. It's not a total restriction from all anger of all kinds. Jesus was angry when people were sinning. When people were attacking his father, when people weren't living in righteousness, his anger was about God's righteousness and towards sin. We can be angry and not sin. As a matter of fact, that's what Bruce read right up front. From Ephesians chapter 4, we didn't actually plan that. He goes, this is the verse I'm going to read. I'm like, perfect, I'm talking about it. Be angry, but in your anger do not sin. How do we do that? Can we be angry at the conditions of the world? Absolutely. Can we be angry about the sins and crimes against children? You better believe it. Actually, we can include everybody into that. Can we be angry about the killing of babies? Can we be angry about the corruption and the love of money that is truly the root of all evil? Yes. Yes, we can. Can we do something about it? Can we act? Yes. Yes, we can. See, Jesus was not a pacifist. He did not sit back and just let sin run rampant. He was all about the righteousness of God. He realized, though, it also wasn't about him. And so when we look at that, we have to remember that even when he was arrested, when he was beaten, when he was tortured, when he was murdered on that cross, did he lash out in anger in all of that? No, he said, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. His response wasn't about him. It was about the righteousness of God. But when he was angry, he wasn't angry in selfishness. It was out of righteousness. We call it righteous anger. Angry with the offenses towards God and his word. But obviously we're not Jesus. We're trying, but we're not Jesus. So we have to be careful how we are angry and towards who that we are angry. That it doesn't become personal. That it doesn't become an attack against somebody else. That there are some things we need to remember. The person that we are angry at, we need to remember they are an image bearer of God. We have to remember that. That person is valuable to God. You know how valuable? They're worth one Jesus to them. We also have to remember that person is broken. I'm going to fill you in in case you didn't know, but people are a mess. And I'd like to say just go to Walmart and check it out, but you can see it just around this room as well. Just because we're in church doesn't make us any less messy. Those who have been saved by grace, the repentant sinners, we still have issues. And when we look at a person that we're angry at, we need to realize that person needs Jesus just as much as you and I do. Jesus came for me and my sin. I have been forgiven much and I constantly need to be reminded of that. And then I also need to pass it on. I need to pass on that forgiveness. Now, I would love it if this passage ended right here and I can close in prayer. But Jesus has four more verses that he wants to toss out at us. 
that he wants us to make a little bit more applicable to his disciples and his followers, not just correcting the Pharisees and the scribes, but he wants to speak directly to us. So this is what he says in verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. If you don't get anything else out of today, this is one thing I want you to hold on to. When anger rises, relationships are broken. When anger rises, relationships are broken. They're broken between men. They're broken between men and women. They're broken between men and their children, women and their children. But they're also broken between us and God. Our relationships are broken in that way. As Kyle shared even this morning about being angry. I appreciate him sharing that because we're, we're all human. We all have that anger towards God when things don't go our way. We have anger towards men and women and children when things don't go our way, the way that we want them. But we have to reconcile that. It has to be fixed. I want you to think about the image here. Someone's come to the temple. Now it's going to be different than how we operate because we're talking about a first century audience here. But someone's come to the temple and they brought the perfect animal and they purified themselves externally just to be able to get into the temple. They have to go through all these rituals and the priest is ready to receive it and then Jesus says what? Hold up. Wait a minute. Got to put a little love in it. Come on. Anybody Family Force 5 fan? Okay. I didn't know. I am. But here's the thing you see. He's saying everything on the external is looking good but your heart is a mess and that's got to get fixed first. Because we don't get to substitute the inside by putting on a show on the outside. What about your heart? What about your heart? This is where the hard conversation comes in. What broken thing is between you and somebody else? What broken thing is between you and God? What things are you substituting with ceremony? D.A. Carson wrote a whole thing on the Sermon on the Mount, been reading through his stuff. He said this, men love to substitute ceremony for purity and love, but Jesus will have none of it. That's a powerful statement. We want to bring this offering, but Jesus is like, wait a second, you're coming with the wrong heart. The external thing, you come to church on a Sunday, that's great and all. We're glad you're here, but is your heart right? Are you just singing words because you're on a screen? Are you just sitting here so you can check it off a box? Or is your heart right and your worship right? Because he's going to have none of it. And that's the same place the religious leaders were stuck at. They found themselves, them, themselves wanting to do something for God but having this issue so they decide hey let me see if I can balance out the scales I know I got this issue over here but if I just do enough good things that thing won't matter ever been there absolutely I have and they're there and they're, they're, they're struggling with it if I just do enough religious activity God will like me then it's nothing new King Saul thought that way 1 Samuel 15 King Saul was told by God I want you to go and I want you to completely destroy all of the Amalekites. Completely destroy. I don't want anything left alive, including women, children, animals, everything gone. You know what Saul did? He decided, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang on to the choice animals at least. I'm, I'm going to hang on to those. 
And, and Samuel the prophet goes to him and he confronts him and he says, hey, you know what? You failed to obey the Lord. And you know what Saul says? Well, I was, just, I'm gonna, I was gonna use those pure animals for, for, for sacrifice. And God's like, hmm, that's not what I told you to do. I didn't say bring the pure animals back here for my sacrifice. I said wipe them all out. And Samuel says this to Saul. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like the wickedness and idolatry. And then it makes Saul angry because he got confronted. You know what he does? He goes to the king of Amalek and he hacks him to pieces. What better way do we act out our frustration for getting called out for disobedience than to cut somebody to pieces? That's not an actual you know, challenge, by the way. Uh, but think about it. How many times we got mad because somebody confronted us where we were wrong and we had to go punch something or we had to go let it out on something, get angry with something, whatever it might be. He just took a sword to a guy and hacked him up and body pieces were flying all over the place. That's, that's not good. But that's how it all played itself out. When you know somebody has something against you, we have to know we cannot make it right by doing some other good thing. We have to reconcile. We have to get our heart right. As a matter of fact, David says it in Psalm 66, if I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. God isn't going to accept our worship unless we are in the right place. We have to get to that right place. And it, you know, obviously it takes both parties to get to the right place. But Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If you remember somebody has something against you, go and reconcile. Go and reconcile. And again, it'd be great if that's where Jesus stopped, but he didn't. He went two more verses into all this, and this is what it says in 25 and 26. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is referencing again here a first century reference. It's the Roman custom of the law concerning debtors. Basically, he said, if you are in debt to somebody, you can do an out-of-court, an out-of-court settlement, basically, right up until the time that a judge gets involved. But once the judge is involved, it's all on him. And if the judge decides to throw you in prison, there's nobody that can save you from that. How's it come around? Well, Jesus uses it to say, you need to seek reconciliation with the judge. You need to be reconciled before you meet the judge. The judge being the holy, just judge. So in 23 and 24, the question has been, you know, maybe somebody's done something to you or not and it's been kind of unanswered. All he's saying is remember and get it fixed. But 25 and 26, he say, you're the offender and you should seek reconciliation quickly before you end up getting called into account by God himself. So to wrap it up, Jesus kind of contrasts the true teachings of God with the, the legalism and the, and the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he's calling out, he says, you can't think that you're good just because you've never murdered somebody if you've ever had selfish anger. 
if you've ever called somebody a derogatory name, or if you've ever slandered their character, the judgment against you is the same as the judgment would be had you committed murder. He's saying this. No one here is innocent. All of us are guilty before God. That's why the characteristics of the true righteousness that he describes in the Beatitudes to really get the whole sermon up and off the ground is saying, hey, you got to start with being poor in spirit. Realize you can't do it on your own. you got to be mournful over your sin. You have to understand that we are people that are in need of God's mercy and in need of God's great grace. We have to realize our guilt before him, and we have to cry out for that mercy. You know what he's going to do? He's going to give us that grace. He's going to grant it to us because he reconciled us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for all of our sins on that cross. As we begin to follow him, that anger and that hatred, and I'm going to emphasize the word should, lessen. It should, as we walk with Christ and follow his examples, we interact with others. So here's my question I have for you. How's your walk with Christ? How is your walk with Christ? How is your walk with him? How is your walk with God? How is your relationship with him? How is your walk with others? How is your relationship with them, the image bearers of God? I ask that question because of this. I can't fix your relationship with somebody else. I can't fix your relationship with God. But you can. But it starts with answering the question realizing where the problem is and go and be reconciled how does your relationship need to be reconciled with God what things are you disagreeing with him on how is your relationship with others what things are you disagreeing with them on and how can it make it where that broken heart that broken relationship isn't causing that fracture that keeps you from him what things do you need to work on? As we close here, I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing a song. And as we do, normally I would say, hey, come over and meet me and pray with me. And I'm going to still leave that option open. But I think it's a time maybe that you need to just stop and repent. And ask for that reconciliation between you and God. To think about that person that maybe you're at odds with family member, friend, co-worker, schoolmate, whatever it might be, and say, how can I bring that back together? This is going to be that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for who you are and what you continue to do and how you continue to work in each and every one of us. And Lord, we are first and foremost thankful that you have provided a way for reconciliation through your son, Jesus Christ. That you have provided a way to have a relationship with you. It's something we could have done on our own because we are born sinners. We are born naturally bent in rebellion against you. We're born naturally bent in rebellion against your law, against your ways, against those guardrails that keep us out of the ditch. But when your son was introduced to us, that we could have eternal life, but not just eternal life, a new heart and a new mind and a new desire to live for you. God, all of that changed. Do we still battle with the question, did God really say? Absolutely. And God, we cry out for your help to help us walk through that. 
And as we think about our relationship with you, we want it to be as strong as possible, and we need you to remove those barriers. And some of those barriers might be because we're at odds with somebody that you created. Help us in that as well. God, may you have all the glory. We pray it in your name. Amen.